Virgin Valley Artists Association, welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, The Art Box. Welcome to the Art Box. We have Wick and Robin, and you want to tell us a little bit about yourselves. Okay, so we're Wick Alexander and Robin Brailsford. We've been working together for 30 years. Wick is primarily a painter. Uh, I'm Robin, and I'm primarily a sculptor and a jeweler. Together, we've been working for about 20 years on a process called litho mosaics, which allows us to do large uh, mosaics as part of monolithic concrete pours in public art projects. So that's kind of what sustains, you know, pays the mortgage and buys the dog food, that kind of thing. Um, but we both still, you know, do our own work uh, very extensively. Wick grew up in uh, San Diego. I grew up in Beverly Farms, Massachusetts. We met teaching or working in a program called Young at Art that put artists into city uh, schools and where you basically had residencies in individual schools and we did projects with the kids in the schools. And so it was through that program that Wick and I met. You know, the, the rest is history, so well, to speak. Yeah. So how interesting. Uh, who was paying for the artist in the schools? Was that a grant? It was a woman named Muriel Gluck who uh, had a lot of money, and she gave $8 million to uh, a fantastic person named Kay Wagner who used to run the Children's Museum. And Kay hand-selected, I think it was like 40 or 80 artists and put us in the in the uh, city school. So I had Balboa Elementary and Wick had McKinley Elementary. Um, and, and this was in San Diego? This is in San Diego. Okay. A fantastic program. And then, of course, they ran through the money and then it was over. But I don't know, it was 20 years ago and we were getting paid $25 an hour. I mean, it was fantastic. And the amount of work that came out of the artists themselves and the the kids in the schools and there were poets and musicians and writers and and artists so it was really um, a comprehensive and pretty fantastic program called young at arts oh that sounds amazing that didn't have anything to do with the national endowment of the arts then no i don't think so well i'm gonna pipe in this is wick alexander and we're doing this uh, from Dulzura, California. We're in the middle of nowhere. We uh, look out at a mountain. It's a sacred mountain called Kuchama. And uh, it's got a lot of interesting folklore with the Kumeyaay Indians. And since we've been out in this rural section, we've been exploring. We've had about almost 20 years to explore uh, all the paths that the Kumeyaay have taken, and it's really been an eye-opening transition from us from kind of uh, suburban life. We really are living the dream out here. We've created a, an environment where we're able to create our mosaics here in the studio, in the peace and quiet here, and then we are able to transport our artwork directly to the site in a construction site where the concrete is being poured in place. And our method um, allows for 
no interruption in the, in the schedule of the, of the pour. We come in, we have a licensed crew that works with us to do all the concrete finishing. That's how we got in front of Nikki at the Lincoln City Cultural Center. We were recommended to her by a landscape architect, architecture firm in Portland, Shapiro Didway. We have been working at this project kind of in the periphery for over five years. With the breakout of COVID, we were in a position where we had to do all the Zoom meetings with the city participants, and that was a first for us. And so we had a really interesting dialogue where we talked about poetry. We talked about a lot of the things that you would do in community workshops about what people consider a sense of place. And of course, as you know, Lincoln City is just the most beautiful place. It's on the 101. It has the ocean. It has the the tidelands. It has uh, the forests, lots of nature. And and so the reaction and and, uh, input that we were getting from everyone is that they wanted us to create a a piece of artwork that reflected the nature around them. What we started out by doing was because we couldn't do live workshops, we invented an idea where we made a template. It was based on a book called Circles of Knowledge. And so we took an age-old form of a circle, divided it into quarters, and then within that circle, there are four concentric circles. And the first circle is the sky with the sun and the moon. The second is the ocean. The third is the tidelands. And the fourth is the land. And so within that circle, the quadrants represent the four directions uh, and also other associations with Native Americans, the time of day, the time of year, each of those sections have a either symbolic or literal animal associated with that circle. And so within the large 20-foot circle, there are 64 two-foot circles that create a, an interesting kind of labyrinth of beauty. One of the things that that I always like to talk to, talk about is beauty because beauty is the most repressed subject for artists. When I was in art school, there was never a discussion of beauty or ugly because that was just out of the terminology. Was it um, really? Oh, yeah. Going well, back is, to- is that because art is supposed to be everything beautiful? No. You know, one of my heroes is someone named J- James, yeah, James. James Hillman. And he's a Jungian psychologist. What he says, and I really agree with this, is that the idea of beauty, I actually have a a quote here. He says, the idea of beauty belongs to an airy realm, so we will not be able to close to it on it. It eludes our conceptual grasp, evaporating into feelings that ask the arts to express. Hence, the discussion of beauty tends to merge with discussion of the arts. This risk of its call away from the ordinary world must account for the contemporary repression of beauty in the art departments and art criticism. 
Beautiful and ugly are not terms that enter the vocabulary of teaching or in the thinking of arts. The very basis of what the arts were understood once to serve no longer enters as a factor in their making. In those schools that and that criticism, beauty has been demeaned to mean pretty, easy, pleasing, mindless, the simple, and especially old-fashioned and naive. And because beauty has so naively conceived, all sorts of attempts are made to violate her sweetness by shock, assaulting discord and terrestrial crudities. True art must prove itself immune to the seduction of beauty, its naive ugliness to counter the naive notion of beauty. What book is that from, Wick? That's from James Hillman's City and Soul, and it's the chapter called The Cost of Ugliness. I see you have some quotes from James Hillman here in the paper that you sent me. Yes. But not that. I was trying to read along. I was like, where's it at? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't send that, but the idea was that this project was this idea that we have beauty as an instinct, all of us. And so in that quote that we sent out, he makes a statement that says, animals also share this aesthetic response. They must, if a sense of beauty is instinctual, animals present themselves as an aesthetic display, colors, forms, symmetry, gates, and gestures, decorative attributes like horns and hair patterns and tails and spots and stripes, and all sorts of smells and sounds that we don't perceive. Animals are always on display. All animal life has a coat, an outer appearance, even those that swim in the sea at the very bottom where there is no light to see them. The way creatures size each other up is aesthetic and how they show themselves. And the world is a vast presentation of the senses asking for aesthetic responses. Good and deep. Yeah, it, it is very deep. And we felt like the community had a lot of very interesting observation. And one of the one of the community members said that they wanted to create a self-actualizing space. And two, that they wanted it to represent the conclusion of a dream. So these were very high-minded community members who were really trying to tap into something very universal and, and transcendent. It's also an interesting city, right, because Lincoln City is made up of seven individual cities that were sort of, you know, reconfigured to form one at Lincoln City. And so the handle, the, the branding for Lincoln City or those the cities that were made up, uh, that made up Lincoln City is a string of pearls. And so when Oh, Wick, okay, that's the string of pearls. Right. So when Wick came up with this concept of these rings within rings, which is I'm sure you'll have a link where people can actually see what the layout is, uh, that's all based on the idea of a string of pearls. And it's also based on this, you know, pretty deep insight that these people had in the community workshop. We actually wrote poem, a poem too for the sidewalk called Ebb and Flow based on what their their comments were. I think that's now going to be replaced by one by the Poet Laureate of the state. But nonetheless, what they came up with in Ebb and Flow is still a very interesting sort of look into the heart 
of the community and what was important to them. Well, again, that was so interesting listening to her interview because we we learned so much more about her and we knew, learned so much more about the center because, again, because of COVID, we haven't been there. So now we have a much better idea what the Lincoln City Cultural Center is because of your great interview. <laughs> and and my uh, my walkthrough with her. <laughs> right, exactly. We're that you're not able to see anything. But <laughs> yeah, but still we could picture it. And it, again, it made us understand her much better. The idea is that, that, you know, we're sort of talking about this one project in particular because, you know, when people say, what's your favorite project? You know, the correct answer is the next one or the one that's down on my bench. And so... This is the one that's down on the bench. This one is ready to go, which has the 62 or 64, 64 pearls all done. But we have not done the background yet because that medicine wheel kind of background for the directions he was talking about, because we're hoping we can bring those two foot circles, those mosaic two foot circles up to Lincoln City and lay them out in order in the in the auditorium, which you've toured and have that be sort of an art exhibition and actually hopefully an auction. We would like very much to be able to put each one of these individual uh, mandalas up for auction. And so, you know, you and your neighbors could contribute, you know, a thousand dollars and get a mandala. And then there would be a plaque somewhere that says that, you know, the Clio street neighbors bought or supported this one mandala. And then together it represents the whole community. Wick really went all out on this. Again, he's not, he's he started off as a painter. He still is a painter. And so this one, the small detail and the attention to colors and texture and spacing and humor and portraiture in his layout is really stellar and it's sort of a whole other level for us. Yeah, well, well, thank you for what you said, because that's opened it all up to me now what it really is. Right. Yeah, and, and Nikki's certainly very excited. And she's like, well, people don't want to stop. And like My wife and I, when we saw that it was an old elementary school and was an art place, we're like, no, we're stopping. <laughs> she's like, well, yeah, but the outside's crappy, the parking lot. This is going to make it so. And wow, they did a great job with the, uh, with the flyover. And yeah, she's done a good job showing it. Right. I think she thinks, you know, she still does have miles to go and, you know, and is working very hard. And then that whole thing about that the that the lottery, the state lottery wasn't bringing in the money that was expected during COVID. You know, those are the kinds of things that we don't, you know, think about from where we're sitting. We're just, you know, concentrating on the beauty and to, you know, to pull that back to what Wick was reading there. Beauty is something that he talks about a lot and is very much on his mind. And I think if you look at contemporary art, a great deal of it is not about beauty. And so he's really trying to pull his own work in a different direction. And that's good. That's why you're an artist. Right. Because you can think outside the box. Right. And and actually, you know, maybe our listeners don't know that the reason we're connected here, and actually we talked about this before I started recording, is that I was on vacation and did an interview at the Lincoln City Cultural Center uh, with Nikki Price. And I'm also involved in a project, uh, a land art project, and with another friend is Paula Jacoby. So between Paula and Nikki, it led to Robin, which led to Wick, which is why we're doing this podcast now. Well, and I, could, I, I think it might be interesting to take that a little bit further. So how did I meet Paula? 
Yeah. Uh, your visitors all know what the Spring Mountains are in Mount Charleston, because if you're 80 miles north of Las Vegas, you drive by it all the time. And so I was hired by the National Forest Service to do a study with five or six other people uh, looking into the potential of the Spring Mountains. And I was to figure out what public art could go there. And this person I'd never met before, Paula Jacoby Garrett, was hired to do the biology, you know, specifically butterflies. There was a person who was getting stories from the older residents. There were, can't even remember everybody who was there, but we had very intense and exciting opportunity. So, you know, you don't know me that well yet, but you'll soon learn that I, you know, take everything to the nth degree. I said, well, I'm moving to Mount Charleston. I'm going to live there for a month and I'm going to hike every trail on Mount Charleston, which I did. So I lived in those condos that are just down from the lodge, um, you know, became basically a member of the community. And I had a, I don't know, three or four year old dog and we hiked every trail in the mountain. And then we, I came up with this big study of, I don't know, five or 15 opportunities to do public art. And the Forest Service really wanted me to identify all the artists in the LA, the Las Vegas basin that I thought you could do or would be interested in doing work at the mountain. And then also bring in other artists who they thought, who I thought would be appropriate. So with, as with many things governmental, that's where it stood. I did a, a very big study. There should be a copy of it at the Mount Charleston Library, but I have recently given my copy of it to the Nevada Museum of Art in Reno, they have a land art archive. And so now it's an important part of their land art archive. And one of my big ideas was to take Lee Canyon. And because that's a road that goes up the mountains and go, mountain and goes through so many different climatic zones, which you see when you're driving in your car, you see the temperature, you know, going up or down depending on the season and you see the vegetation changing, et cetera. That is actually a proposal on my website to work with a couple of artists named Helen and Newton Harrison, who are very well-known, were very well-known environmental artists, sort of the leaders of the environmental art movement. Uh, Newton died this year. Helen died about two years before. But their center, the Center for the Study of the Force Mayor, is still going strong and is located at UC Santa Cruz, Lee Canyon and Green Canyon. I call it actually Green Lee Canyon is still sort of an active idea floating out there that we might actually be able to do something where we're really calling attention to climate change and the flora and fauna as you go up and down that mountain. What a great opportunity. Yes. Yeah, because the climate change is, is working its way. Let me think, is it working its way down or up? Well, either way. Right. Yeah, things are changing. And that road goes right up through it. So, you know, the audience is built in. I'm working on another project with them at a field station in the Sierras, but it's almost impossible to get to. Whereas Lee Canyon, I mean, you know how easy it is to drive up Lee Canyon. You know, every time it snows or it's too hot or whatever, people are cruising up there enjoying the views and the, the landscape. How great would it be to have stops along the way where you could get out and really sort of understand what's going on? Some really artistic insight into what that is. Yeah, absolutely. Paula worked on that with me and she's continuing to work with me. She's somebody else you should interview. She just became a drone pilot. <laughs> yeah, she uh, 
the drone came in useful with with two of our projects we're working on. She's in many art shows now. All of a sudden, she's turned into an artist. She's doing all this 3D printing. She runs the science department at Adelson School, private school. She, you know, she teaches at the Springs Preserve. She teaches at UNLV. So she's quite a Renaissance woman and certainly deserving of an interview. Just to note, we interviewed Paula at the Marjorie Barrick Museum of Art the other day, and she will be in an upcoming episode. I want to go back, though. I want, Wick, can you talk about what's in some of the circles on your, you think are the highlights of your Lincoln City cosmography? Are you going to be able to post any images of, for, for your listeners to view somewhere? Yeah, absolutely. Before I begin there, before I forget, I wanted to, if, if the listeners are ever in San Diego area, uh, one of the things that everyone will just be blown away by is a project that we did in La Jolla. And we worked with Walter Monk, who died at 101 and a half. And he was the founder of Scripps Institute of Oceanography. There's a lot of indication that during World War II, he was responsible for the weather prediction uh, for the troops to be able to invade Normandy. And then the entire war shift, uh, the, uh, the momentum of the war shifted after that. So Walter was an amazing man who continued to have uh, influences around the world in oceanography. And he was someone who embodied an ideal, and his was uh, ocean conservation. Walter had visitations from the popes, all the presidents, the Dalai Lama. Everyone who wanted to know more about the oceans was, was, was seeking out to communicate with Walter Monk. And so during the last two years of his life, we were able to just work shoulder to shoulder with him and Scripps Institute, creating this map of the canyons of La Jolla, which Walter first drew as a um, study when he came to La Jolla in the 1930s. And there are these deep ravines that come out from Black's Beach and La Jolla shores and they connect together and they continue to drop down in 100 meter increments until in a very short distance away from shoreline, they go almost 2000 feet uh, below, below sea level. Uh, Walter was responsible for recognizing the patterns in the water and how the, the tides come into the shore and how those water surges were being affected by this deep canyon. And because of these canyons coming in so deep and then all the way almost to the shoreline, it brings in very unusual and varied sea life. And there are 800-pound sea bass that come up to the children's pool, <laughs> great white sharks, sea tortoises. And so part of what we were asked to do is to represent all the sea creatures in that area that are indigenous, indigenous to there. Life-sized. Life-sized. So we have, a, we have a gray whale that's over 32 feet. Oh, wow. And it's, it's all in our lithomosaic technique, and we used a lot of stone and uh, glass tiles to represent it. 
and it's at La Jolla Shores in Kellogg Park, and it's at Walter Monk Way, and it's called The Map of the La Jolla Shores, La Jolla. The Grand Canyons of La Jolla. Grand Canyons of La Jolla. So any of your listeners, this is a one-of-a-kind experience for you. You'll, you'll never forget it. Those listeners who do go up and will eventually see our plaza in Lincoln City, Michael was mentioning before, there are 64 circles within a larger circle. Those all correspond to winter, spring, summer, and fall in the four quadrants. Right. And then within those four quadrants, this is how we set up our initial template for the community members to be involved the the sky the ocean the tide lands and then land and so within those four groupings either there's a symbol or there's an animal that has a direct symbol to where it's located within the medicine wheel uh, which is how we organized organized it and so because of covid uh the whole idea of the, the community making drawings for us to put into the mosaic just didn't work out. And, and so we ended up going forward with our original template um, and then filled in, and that's how we ended up with our final work. Yeah, so, that's, that's, the bottom, that's the bottom page of this. Yes. For instance, I'll look at one of the quadrants. So let's say let's say that it's uh, winter right now. Among other things, he had migration, moon purity, water birds, time and eternity, flow, intelligence, mammal and sun. That's just you know half or quarter of the ones that are in the in the winter quadrant. It's going to be re- a really interesting project because. You will be standing in the middle of this thing, and everywhere you look, you'll start, your eye will fall to, you know, an image of a fantastic great blue heron or an abstract image of time. It has a lot of levels to it. It's not just sort of a picture postcard, pictures of sea lions and and ospreys. It it goes much deeper than that. So there's lots of room for sort of meditation and personal exploration and when you come upon it, you know, the fifth time or the tenth time, you'll see something different than you had ever seen before. In fall, what is a midshipman? <laughs> That's a good, perfect question. Okay. No, knowing that, I used to work at the Naval Academy, so I know what a, I know what a midshipman is there. Well, it's a really interesting fish that when the tide goes out, they have the ability to be uh, above water and and, and so they're called a midshipman because they have these bioluminescent dots. They're evenly spaced on their breast. So it looks like they're wearing a coat. The thing about midshipmen is they have a very unusual ability to create a sound. And it's often described as a, um, a foghorn. <laughs> People think it's a foghorn coming in, but you can look it up online if you Google midshipman noise or sound. Oh, I'm, uh, it, I'm very definitely going to be doing that right, right after yeah, this. <laughs> yeah. So it's a fish that, that it can survive outside of water that ha- looks like it has on a double-breasted coat 
and it makes sounds like a foghorn. I'm, I'm learning so much here today. <laughs> and and the, the, the sounds are obviously for priority number one, and that's to find a really hot lady midshipman. Oh, yeah, the normal thing, yeah. Yeah, the normal, the normal thing. <laughs> so, yeah, they're... They're um, singing like Frank Sinatra. <laughs> a, a young, a young Frank Sinatra. <laughs> yes, right. Engelbert Humperdinck. Yeah. Hey, oh my goodness gracious! Now we're talking eighties, aren't we? <laughs> I'm, I'm, go, I'm going. I'm going to an event soon, a fundraising event. It's um, the eighties, and I'm trying to think. Oh, what can I wear? Well, you, can go like, you can go like Engelbert Humperdinck. There you go. I just got to like get some sideburns that I can paste on the side. <laughs> and then hair. I invented Litho Mosaic because... I practically killed myself trying to put in a big mosaic in Phoenix, Arizona when it was 100 degrees. After practically breaking my back and dying of you know, heat exhaustion, I thought there's got to be a better way. That led to the R&D where we came back to the studio and said, how can we do this where we glue the tiles onto some substrate like you're talking about? And then instead of using mortar and grout, they become part of the monolithic concrete pour, uh, which is you know how sidewalks are made and you know you're your patio, et cetera. It took a long time to get, you know, the, the right combination of glue and mesh and spacing and concrete and concrete contractor and recipe of the concrete and all that kind of thing. But we finally figured it out. Wick mentioned my website. There are videos on the last page that show exactly basically how it works. So we make all the mosaics in the studio on mesh Believe it or not, you can roll the, the sections of mesh up. On a big project, we usually make the sections about four by eight feet. And you can put a tube in the middle, like a PVC tube in the middle, irrigation tube, and roll the mesh around it like a bolt of fabric. And then ship that to the site. And a licensed uh, litho mosaic installer, concrete crew, where you know they have the, the proper boots and vests and jackets and hats and insurance and training, they put it in and they put it in very quickly. So, for instance, Nikki's will go in. I would say in one day, two at the most, which is fantastic for the client because they don't have a bunch of hippie artists and Birkenstocks out there for months on end, backing into parked cars and, you know, slopping concrete around. Because there's no mortar and no grout, it can be in a climate like Lincoln City, Oregon. Where it rains 364 days a year. Right. And of course, the rain isn't the big thing. It's the freeze thaw, which I wanted to mention, too. So, you know, everything, all this keeps going around in circles in a way. But one a litho mosaic that your listeners can see, well, there's several that they can see in the Las Vegas area. One is at the Corn Creek Visitor Center, which is across the street from the Spring Mountains. Right. The other one, and this brings us back to Paula, is the Reunion Trails Park in Henderson. And that was a job where the landscape architect wanted us to make these big mosaics based on M.C. Escher's lizards. We didn't think that that was going to make a very good mosaic. We obviously were very interested in science and, you know, communicating truisms and wisdom and that kind of thing. 
we came up with the idea of transforming the M.C. Escher lizards into indigenous lizards from the region, the valley that you're in. Lo and behold, guess who has pet lizards? Paula Jacoby Garrett. <laughs> Paula came down with her pet lizards, which she also takes around to school groups, et cetera, to train about you know, the native lizards in the area. And so the lizards that are, what, eight feet? Some eight, ten feet, something like that, at Trails Park are all based on live lizards that Paula has. Oh, are they really? How great is yeah. that? Yeah, I think I probably met Paula several years ago. Back before COVID, when Friends of Gold Butte would right. have um, our Wednesday speaker series. And I remember someone, and I think it was her, I think she told me that, with the lizards that she bought around and people could, yeah. you don't pet yeah. a lizard, but you, know, you could touch them. Right. So those are the very lizards. I mean, she literally came to the site with them and we photographed them there and then, uh, you know, went back and, and made them 100 times bigger. What was difficult about that, of course, is that M.C. Escher wasn't really too religiously tied to what a lizard really looks like. And so the proportions of things were way off. But because M.C. Escher's work is all about tessellation and things linking into one another, we had to follow his exterior form and just work on the coloring based on Paula's lizards. Are you guys ready for uh, a couple of questions? Sure. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, do you, do you use meditation as a tool? Well, Robin's pointing to me to answer. You know, I I think that one of the things that we brought up before was someone's comment about creating a space for self-actualization for the uh, for the artwork. And so I started to look up, you know, what was meant by self-actualization. And, of course, that leads you to this philosopher, Maslow, who first came up with this idea of the hierarchy of needs right and, yes and then eventually it was the hierarchy of happiness and at the very top of the pyramid is the self-actualization and so what we do in our daily life is that we have this practice of doing the mosaics which are very kind of meditative and in this idea of self-actualization, this Maslow talks about how someone who is very lucky is someone who's figured out figured out their calling. Whatever work they do, they don't consider it work. It's just they're following their heart and they're loving what they're doing. And so, basically, time stops. You don't. You're not worried about time. And I think that that is kind of a, a, a something with meditation is that you. You, re- you relieve yourself of the worldly burdens, and if it's if it's temporary, and then your mind gets a chance to really absorb what's what, you know things that are coming out from who knows where. If you're Jung, you would call it the psyche. And one of the things I learned about reading with with Jung is is that you know we we think of the psyche as out there somewhere, but really it's we who are in the psyche. And so that's part of just tapping into the, the psyche with us is working on our art. Okay, which here's another thing that I, it's not on my list of questions, but I've been thinking a lot about it because I'm always distracted. Mm-hmm. Okay, and do you go to your studio, assuming you have a studio, and, and how do you deal with distractions? Uh, your questions are great. So thank you for that. I have always had a studio my entire life. I've never not had a studio. And I always like to say I have the best studio in America. 
So, yes, we have a wonderful studio at the house. Where we live, we built the house. It's sort of a compound on 13 acres. It's basically three-quarter studio, one-quarter living. So it's sort of a one-bedroom apartment upstairs above studio. Uh, and oh, the light. That sounds perfect, doesn't it? It is. An artist's it's, dream. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to spend very much time vacuuming because it's, it's almost all studio. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we, we go to the studio and we're, we're very happy in the studio. The reality is where we live is we have almost no distraction. And, you know, COVID keeps coming up in this interview, which is interesting because the life that we fashioned for ourselves, 50, well, we've lived here 20 years now, is like a COVID existence for anybody else. So we very rarely, you know, go out into the world. We Wick was much more this way at the, than I was at the beginning. But the longer I go, the more I just want to be here. And so we can work all the time. Our parents have both passed away. Wick's kids are grown up. We have two nice dogs. We don't have any nasty neighbors. We seem to have enough money to pay the bills every month. So we basically just work all the time. And I can't really think of a distraction that we have. Sometimes there's too much traffic on the road when they're working on the road. But other than that, we're kind of distraction-free. All my notifications are turned off on my computer and my phone. The phone doesn't ring, and I don't. And since, but somebody sends me a text or whatever, I don't. It doesn't bing. Yeah, and that's perfect. Well, you know, we're lucky in that we uh, can just go out the door and pick a direction, and we're in a trail. It's a nature trail, and so... If you're among the philosophers who believed in, you know, walking and thinking, we have plenty of that. Going back to your question to Robin about the distractions, I I tend to think about it in terms of like a, being a farmer, that you've got a lot of tasks to do during the day, but you just take whatever time you need to, to finish the task and do it right. Whether it's, you know, for us, we have we have a lot of acreage to maintain and so there's a lot of this and that along with our art but we do try and you know put work to rest uh, at the end of the day we're we're both guilty of being workaholics but it's that's not not fun if you're that's all you're doing yeah i found it very very interesting with nikki and she talked about you know you hear so much about work life balance uh-huh. and she says i love my work yeah, there is no work-life balance for it. Her husband loves his work, so right. they work. But work is their work, but it's also their pleasure. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's a level of you know wisdom to it too, because I don't answer the phone after five o'clock. You know, it's just a rule that I've set up because I learned that if I was looking at emails on the phone after five o'clock, then I wasn't sleeping because those things were all in my mind. We tend to watch a Netflix movie every night, and it's sort of a nice, calm time where we're together. We eat pretty well. We're also very interested in politics. We're we're very liberal, and we're sort of addicted to, you know, really being connected to what insanity is going on or is being corrected. But it, it is it's a pretty simple life right now. I mean, I I think everybody can say, oh, I like to travel or. You know, I like my kids or I like my dog. And, you know, those things are all, you know, sort of given. But um, the reality is, is it's pretty straightforward. It's it's become very simple. And in so doing, it's streamlined and therefore pretty uh, efficient economically and time-wise. Yeah, efficient is a good word. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll chime in here. There was a really good cartoon that I liked, <clears throat> I saw, and it was this idea that, uh, an artist is saying, 
this is what my mother thinks I do. And it shows a picture of the artist at his easel. <laughs> this is this is what my friends think I do. And, you know, it's this orgiastic scene of beautiful <laughs> women and wine and everything. And then what I really do. And the reality of it is it's, it's sometimes not a very pretty picture. It's arguing with your client on the phone. <laughs> and one of the things that Robin and I have, which really works to our advantage, which is that when there's conflict, which inevitably there's conflict in art and whatever vision, we have one that plays the good cop and one that plays the bad cop. We shift roles, you know, when one of us has been playing the bad cop for too long, we try and push it over on the next guy. Well, I, I take that further. I it, I don't know if I'd call it good cop, bad cop, but one one has to be in the lead because if we're both trying to be the lead on a project, it doesn't work because we have different styles. We get along much better if, if there's one person in charge of a project, you know, and so we go back and forth. So the Lincoln City one, for instance, Wick is in charge of. The one before that, the map, I was in charge of. And that just keeps us sane. Well, I can agree with you on that. To me, co-anything yeah. is rife with problems. Right. I, I, I say that, but I'm co-webmaster. <laughs> and, and and we seem to get along pretty good. But that's because when she dives into her art, I handle everything. When I yep. dive into something I'm doing, because right. I hate to say that I'm an artist, she handles everything. And right. this month she's handling everything, so I can just put my blinders on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So where, if we we're both trying to do it, we'd be, we'd be bumping heads, I'm sure. Yeah, right. it's like what they say, the... The uh, translation for Ikea is uh, divorce. <laughs> and it's because two people, they get, a, they get a, a box that they have to put together. And just, just can imagine, you know, the arguments that break out, you know. My way would be right. What did you do with the screwdriver? <laughs> and, and so just imagine that tenfold in our creative lives where sometimes we really do butt heads about color and choices of aesthetics and then eventually the ego has to just fly away allow the, the surprise to come in Since we talked briefly about sleeping, maybe we didn't, but do you ever, because this will happen to me, and I sleep very well because I exhaust myself. For uh -huh. some reason, I work, 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 and I exhaust myself mentally. If I don't, then I'll have a hard time sleeping. But in any case, do either of you ever wake up at night with a great idea <laughs> and you immediately get up and go write it down or go work on it or... Okay, I'll answer that. Not exactly that way, but yes. You know, epiphanies, yes. And that's one of the frustrating things about being a public artist, because if you're applying for a project that's, you know, announced on the internet or whatever, you have to really think very heavily about it. You have to write a letter, you have to put your slides together, you have to think about the site, you have to really you get all the juices flowing. And at this stage of the game, they don't want an idea. They want you to, like, 
hold the train at the station, so to speak, right? And, you know, very often that's not possible. In a day or two, I wake up and it's like, I've got the whole thing completely figured out. And that's how I tend to think. I, I tend to think in a very big picture. I don't worry about the minutia at the beginning. I get the overall scheme. So for instance, with the, the, the map with Walter Monk, when we were brought in on it, the they did not have, they were not incorporating Walter in the design of the project. And I said, we've got the Einstein of the oceans here. How can we not be collaborating with Walter Monk? And that's when we found this paper of this exact beach where he had done studies of the waves entering into this exact, you know, into this exact location. And so when you look at that, that project, there's red lines, which are the arcs of Walter's drawing, and then the saw cuts are also lines in Walter's drawings. Once you get that epiphany, it, it, you know, the whole thing is there, and then it's just sort of filling it in. So I think the short answer is yes. Wick always says that he's got you know, 10 or 15 paintings light up in his brain. He always knows what he's going to do next. Yeah, I to answer your question, in, in the middle of the night, I never come up with good ideas. You know, Robin, sometimes she'll wake up in the morning and say, oh, I had this most amazing dream. And I was in someone else's art studio and I was looking at their, their work and it was just so amazing. And, you know, and she's realizing that that's her own work on the wall. But when I'm looking at it in the space... I'm really studying it because it's so good, I could never dream that up. You know, for, for myself, I'm the guy who wakes up at three or four and starts worrying about things, and then that doesn't go very well. When I do eventually fall asleep, I, I find my best ideas are when I go out in the morning, and uh, I usually have to kind of look at the garden. I mean, in our garden, it's how many acres? Like. It's probably six down here. Six acres, so watering. And, and then while I'm doing that, I, I'm kind of open to the ideas, and that's really when my best ideas come in. And at the very least, if there are some problems that are hanging on, I somehow come up with a good resolution out there just thinking it through. Yeah, mine would be when I was walking and when I was working, if I was walking and came up with an idea, of course, mm -hmm. this was before smartphones, but we had flip phones. I would just have to call my work uh, voicemail and leave a <laughs> right, message right. for myself. <laughs> hey, whatever works, right? Exactly. Is, is there a funny story that sticks out with your art? Well, I can tell you a million, but the one that is, I think, one of the funnier ones is, so I did a whole series of artworks that were involving blame because I went to an artist residency uh, at Banff and all the artists were extremely uptight and they were always complaining about the food and their beds and you know the, the lack of a place to go and party or whatever. I started out this series and it was called uh, Someone Stole My and then I would change it out to Banff stole my sleep, Banff stole my appetite. And then uh, that began to like really grow and expand in all directions. So I became, it became more of a philosophy. And so religion stole my faith, uh, marriage stole my happiness. Uh-oh. Yeah, well, we aren't married. Uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, so... Um, 
uh, our, we have friends from the Netherlands, and when I was working on this series, they were very intrigued, and the, and their musicians they wrote um, an entire opera called "Art Stole My Life." Oh, along with the opera, they had a graphic artist basically put a, a, a like a postcard postcard together where on the top it was you could fill in something blank and then stole my was in the middle and then the bottom was you could fill in and so they had a contest and so the dutch are very famously have a, a dark sense of humor <clears throat> the raffle when it came around the, out of the 500 en entrance uh, of people who'd filled out these postcards you know something stole by something the winner was <laughs> this was a, a current event that was happening around the world it was the um big tsunami that um, hit thailand this guy uh wrote on on the card tsunami stole my beach towel <laughs> and and so while this was happening i had an art show in san diego <laughs> and it was sort of one of these places that had a space, but there was also an organic grocery store in the bottom area. After hanging the work, I got a call from the, the director of the gallery there, and she said, you won't believe it, but two of your paintings fell down off the, off the wall. The, the people who were there cleaning up, they just threw them away. <laughs> and... So they were framed, right? And that seemed really odd that that would happen, right? And so in the end, it was, it was the, the irony is that someone stole my, <laughs> stole my, right? So um, that's the punchline. Someone, <laughs> someone stole my, stole my. <laughs> they didn't drop off the wall. They got stolen. So that's my funny one. Well, Wick is the, Wick is the humorist. I, Wick has, one of the things that makes Wicks and my relationship work is that he has a phenomenal memory and he can remember everything that's ever happened, ever, any movie he's ever seen, any slight that anybody's given him, any, you know, wink that anybody's given him, he remembers all the way back into the dark ages. And I have no memory, but I have a spectacular sense of direction. So if it weren't for me, you know, Wick wouldn't be able to find his way home from the grocery store. You know, part of that memory thing, right, is his his ability to tell jokes. I have no ability to tell jokes. I will say, though, that one of the things that's always interesting about Wick's work, the paintings, is that you can look at them in two ways. Um, if it's something that's uh, political or decisive and you look at it and you think that it, you're thinking that, the reality is, is that people bring to it what their own state of mind is, and they see it from their own point of view, and they don't see it as decisive. So that's a really interesting thing that happens in his work is that it can sort of cut both directions. If you go back in time in the art world, where would you go and why? Here's what I'll say. I have often thought that if I was a person, a woman living hundreds of years ago, the only place that I would have had any freedom and any creative freedom would have been as a nun. Because the, the nuns weren't required to have children. Um, they could think and pray and sing and, and illuminate manuscripts, et cetera, reasonably unencumbered compared to, you know, being a peasant or being a socialite. Just off the top of my head, you know, it, it ties in with women's rights. 
So that's going to be my answer. Well, yeah. So, so for me, you know, my complaint I, I mentioned earlier about. Uh, actually, actually, I should say that's bad. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt you, Wick. But yeah, it's bad. It was no um, it was no bargain being a woman. No. Right. So, yeah. So I look at it from the point of view of being a woman. Short answer. Go ahead, Wick. Now I lost my train. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, what I was what I was getting at is is that in today's art world, contemporary art has a, a real sardonic and and sarcastic edge to it. So if you're not in the know, it kind of leaves people really out of it, out of the in joke. There's a good movie called The Velveteen something. Uh, anyway. I'll figure it out. If I were to look back in history, the era of Baroque, where uh, the churches and the music and the art forms, they were all really trying for uh, an ideal that that they never really wanted to compromise anything except the art form itself. The other uh, thing is is that we we went to Japan a couple of years back. We went into a, uh, a monastery that was a new religion, new meaning after World War II. It was called Omoto. And their religion basically formed because they believed that the way to God was to be creative. And so they embraced all of the um, Japanese traditional art forms, the uh, tea ceremonies, ceramics, calligraphy, and I really agree with that. I think that that the the whole uh, philosophy of creativity was was really one that I could relate to as in terms of creating a spiritual goal in in losing yourself and your creativity. That that really appealed to me. Either a baroque or a moto monk. But what's interesting about a moto is that the reason why it was founded was there was a woman who was a rag picker, an illiterate rag picker. And she started channeling uh, vast amounts of information and writing it all down. And so she's the founder of the Omoto religion. Wick will remember more about it than I do. But it was, you know, this woman who out of nowhere just created reams and reams and reams of, of writing that she was channeling from the universe. What has inspired you this past week? You know how artists, every once in a while, they get a chance to um, be in the limelight. So uh, last Saturday, I got a chance to be in the limelight because I was in a show called Lost Lost in Translation, A Game of Telephone. And I was asked by a curator to contribute an artwork that was a response to a literary prompt. And so we, we didn't. We were a group of 17 visual artists and 17 literary artists. And so it was all in secret. We eventually got a a text saying, okay, you're up. Here is your prompt. And so when I got my prompt, oh man, it was, it was only seven lines and it was just really obscure and dark. And I took a long time to even begin to know what I was going to contribute. Anyway, uh, months and months passed, and I, I finally came to a resolve about what I was going to do. And time was running out because they, they had all these dead limits, deadlines for uh, catalogs, etc. Since I didn't know 
exactly, you know, if everyone else was going to have the situation because it was also secretive, I thought, well, okay, maybe I had the only terrible prompt, and, you know, I was going to just end up with a real dog in the show. Anyway, we went to the show not knowing what was going to be on the walls, and then I knew what mine was. <laughs> and so it, in the end, uh, it, it was really inspiring to see, you know, kind of gauging yourself in this long game of, of telephone, because it's really about not only um, interpretation, but misinterpretation and this miscommunication, which is really pervasive in the contemporary world right now. So uh, that that left me both inspired and also validated somehow. Well, I think you could even roll that back to the concepts of ugly and beautiful. Um, it's in a really wonderful gallery at the, at the downtown city library in San Diego. It's a Rob Quigley building. And, the, you know, the people who are in the show are, are very well respected. And Wick's painting looks fantastic. But it's a very bleak series of writing that then results in a very bleak series of paintings. So, and, it, and there was a huge group of people there at the opening, and people were really engaged. So it was interesting to see how well-received the whole thing was. And Wick sighed a big sigh of relief because his painting did look great. On that note, what has inspired me or is inspiring me at the moment and is that... Uh, I mentioned before studios. I really like I have various and sundry studios, and I could talk for you know two days about my studios. But during COVID, for the last two years, I had a studio at um, the Daly Ranch, which is a twenty thousand acre ecological preserve, which is a um, has a nineteen sixties ranch house on it and five hundred head of cattle, and I was lucky enough to get a uh, galvanized metal building as a studio where I could not lock the doors or even shut the doors because it needed free access for birds and bats and rats and whatever else. And it had a fantastic loading dock, kind of a deck and wonderful light. And so I created between the solstices, a series of sculptural installations that I then photographed, both of which were things I had never done before. The photographs turned out so great that I made them into a book and the book can be found on my website, Chronotopes, chronologically at Cranium. And the book I sent to various and sundry people, and one of the people I sent them to sent, was Fred Chapel, who is a very well-respected writer and poet who lives in North Carolina. He used to be the poet laureate for the state. He sent me back this incredibly inspiring letter where he was sort of startled by how great he thought the book was, and he wrote a prompt for all, actually, I think it is like 64. I think this is number 64 again. Keeps, keeps cropping up. It keeps cropping up. All 64 images in the book. And that led me to then create a new piece, a new installation piece in that metal building about Fred's letter. And so one of the things that I'm working on now is this insert that goes into the book that's based on Fred's response to my sculpture. So in a way, it's kind of like Lost in Translation. You know, I did the image, he did the writing, now I'm doing the image again. I do a lot of writing, I do a lot of sort of artist books that go nowhere, hence the, the one for Mount Charleston, for instance. But it's important to me that they exist out there in the universe. So Fred Chappell's letter, 
I think, is the thing that's inspired me the most this year. You guys, um, Robin, thank you very much for your time today. This was, you know, we get into other things. This was a true art podcast. You, you talked about art and creativity. Excellent. Thank you. Your questions are superb. I really appreciate this. This is going to be a good episode, even though I talk during it. No, it's good when you talk because you're an interesting guy, too. And so um, and you know what? It's a lot easier to talk to somebody than to just blather on into space. Yes, it is. Although I've been accused that I can blather on into space. Yeah, come for the celebration. Well, come for the installation. You should see it being installed. Oh, I'd love to come to the installation. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so All much. Right, bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Change your heart. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Everybody's gotta learn sometime.